welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Today from Ohio, it's Bob Bazenko, and um, thanks for watching or listening, <clears throat> and um, please continue to do so and share. Uh, and uh, we have a couple uh, things coming up here. Um, we have some books available, so from now, for, you know, for the foreseeable future, until we run out of them, if you want to make a, a nice donation, Scott will tell you how in a minute, uh, we have some books that uh, we can send you. We'll uh, put that up on the website and let you know what's available. It's a lot of stuff I've done, some stuff I've edited mostly. And then um, also, uh, we, we always want money because we have a little bit of overhead, but we've been thinking about getting some uh, green and red drip. So uh, if you want to donate, we're, we're thinking of getting some like hats or T-shirts or coffee mugs or something like that made for all of our great uh, supporters who have already donated and for those in the future who will. So um, if you want to send us a few bucks for that, uh, that would be awesome too. And if you are interested in any of those items, you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail.com. And then if you just want to make a donation, you can make, go to our website, greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And, or you can become a patron and we have, a small but growing and mighty group of patrons at our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash green red podcast and become a sore porter of the green and red podcast. And it's, it's fitting that we're actually, you bring up books, Bob, because today we are joined by Leslie James Pickering, who is, uh, who is the co-owner of burning books. Uh, and so welcome to green and red, uh, Leslie. Yeah. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, Leslie is also the former spokesperson for the Earth Liberation Front. And so we're going to be talking a bit about Leslie's you know, history with that. And we're be talking actually a little bit about hopefully about radical infrastructure and burning books and things like that as well. And, and burning books has actually been a supporter of the Green and Red podcast, too. So much appreciation for that. Um, uh, just and just like a, a little bit of background, 80s, 90s, 2000s, saw growth, a period of growth in radical environmentalism and animal rights movement. It was a, a period marked with radical anti-capitalist politics around corporations waging war on the earth, people, and animals. It also saw escalating tactics that included uh, property destruction and arson. Uh, and so that, that led to industry and government crackdowns on radical movements. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so maybe just to kick off, uh, maybe tell us just like briefly about how, um, how you got involved in, in radical environmentalism. Um, well, I, uh, wanted to do something meaningful with my life at a young age. Didn't exactly know what that was, but I was drawn towards, uh, I don't know, just counterculture and rebelliousness. I was a skateboarder. That was my main activity as a teenager, but I, you know, through association of that in the early nineties, you know, I was drawn into like punk and hip hop and all that kind of stuff. So I went to a show, a punk show and was given some zines uh, about, about the Animal Liberation Front. That was like the first time I had ever heard of, I don't know, like vegetarianism or animal rights or anything like that. So I um, thought it was pretty, pretty exciting stuff. 
And I just remember pouring over those zines for days and days. And um, yeah, I think I was convinced at that point, I was probably 15. So um, so I, I did go out to California, did a lot of skateboarding in California. I'm from here, Buffalo, but I moved to California and was skateboarding out there, but it's kind of getting disillusioned with that and um, started focusing on uh, activism more and starting out with people who were doing activism particularly like uh, civil disobedience and hunt sab type of stuff, protesting against vivisection at the time. Mm. So and that, that drew me into it. Uh, just real quick for the, for the audience, because I don't think we've talked about that too much. Can you tell us what hunt sab is? Um, yeah, so hunt sab is like an old sort of animal liberation technique where you just go and disrupt a hunt. I think it started in, in the UK with this sort of like, you know, hoity like fox hunts and stuff like they got going out there. So you just you go into like a planned hunt and, and you, you know, disrupt it however, however you can. So a lot of noise and like scents and getting between the hunters and the hunted and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there were people that were involved in that that I met uh, when I was first getting into activism. So yeah, you know, in my case, I, I learned about the animal liberation front like before I ever knew what people for the ethical treatment of animals was or anything like that. So um, that was sort of always my orientation. What was some of the stuff that you did, you did early on? Like what sort of like organizing and action did you did? And then want to ask you also about like the, some of the kind of roles which you became more known for that you took on yeah. later. Yeah, so, you know, along the lines of, of what I was interested in, um, you know, I did kind of reluctantly get involved with the sort of above ground groups that were organizing around animal uh, liberation at the time. Um, but it was... In all honesty, I was just looking for people to do something more radical with. <laughs> I was young and angry and um, pretty much still am. And, uh, and so that's, you know, just going to, I was just looking. In fact, I was, I was pretty much looking for like the Animal Liberation Front or, you know, that, that, that kind of earth first uh, scene that's out there sabotaging bulldozers. I was, I was looking for one or the other of those. And I figured I could maybe run into some people at some protests and stuff like that. So uh, at like 16 years old, I'm out, I'm out just joining whatever and looking and looking, uh, looking for radical activists to befriend and get involved with. And also like along those lines, just kind of toying around with stuff myself, like whatever, whatever sort of petty things I could, <laughs> I could come up with, uh, me and the few people I was associating with was causing mischief as well. So, um, it really wasn't, it really wasn't meant uh my my activism really wasn't oriented towards um public organizing or um or giving tax deductible donations or even holding signs like from early on it was it was more focused on direct action which was much more exciting to me right on and you know what role did you take on later um can you talk a little bit about that working with the as the press liaison for the earth liberation front yeah, so I wasn't the only person who was who was out there searching for other radical people to to join up with and cause mischief with, and and we did end up kind of gravitating. Um, a lot of that was around civil disobedience actions, some like sort of largish civil disobedience actions at the time, where people were just getting arrested, disrupting mostly vivisection, animal testing, animal experimentation, uh, but also other issues as well, and and sort of this loose group formed around this. Um, newspaper that was called No Compromise. And so I did end up in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, when I was 17. And um, 
met up with some people there with a group that was called the Liberation Collective. And, you know, it, it was it was an animal rights group, but it was trying to be what we now call intersectional, right? So they were sort of uh, trying to be allies to other campaigns like the free Mumia campaigns and, you know, forest defense campaigns and anti-Nike sweatshop stuff that was going on at the time. Everything that we could find, we sort of tried to be an ally to. And, um, but at the same time, we, we were, you know, we were always getting arrested, um, probably arrested a couple dozen times myself. And there was always like local press around that. So locally we were getting attention um, as people who were willing to get arrested and do more radical stuff. Um, and then, you know, sort of nationally, we were, I was part of this, this group of people who were meeting up and getting arrested at these bigger events and, and you know, vocally supportive of the Animal Liberation Front and other things like, like the Underground Railroad and just always talking a lot of, you know, <laughs> always talking a lot of big talk about radical stuff. And I think that, you know, whatever it was, uh, one thing led to another, I could, I could give more specifics, but in general, I think it's just the general situation was a lot of talk about radical stuff. And, and then, you know, whatever actions we were affiliated with just put me in the right place at the right time. And when uh, the Earth Operation Front started taking action and releasing communiques, um yeah somebody somewhere decided that me and the people i was working with uh were uh the right people to get those communiques and uh, would be uh able to get that message out to the press because we were already doing at least some local regional press at the time for illegal activity even if it was just civil civilians so I think that it was just a lot of being at the right place at the right time constantly putting yourself out there throwing yourself out there willing to risk um arrest and and willing to speak up in public and and all of that together put me in a position where i started receiving communiques first from the animal liberation front a couple of mink release actions um but then quickly thereafter uh, the earth liberation front started releasing communiques and sent them to uh to our office so and this period is is uh like 90s late night bid late 90s yeah the 2000s yeah so the first real earth liberation front action was um halloween of 1996 and there was no communicate for that um so by 97 they were doing actions and releasing communicates for them and i think that's right about right before that in early 97 was when we first started getting uh, alf communicates right and the communicates for for those were um, if you want to just like maybe describe some of yeah. the actions that they were doing the communiques on. Yeah, so the first ones we got were for these mink releases and, and, and no disrespect, but this is a fairly easy uh, type of action. At the time, there was a, a zine that was put out that was called The Final Nail. It listed all the uh, fur farm facilities in the US, maybe in North America, if I'm not mistaken. And it was just, you know, wink, wink, like go wreck these places was the idea. And so uh, people would get that and then they would just go to this like relatively small farm in the middle of usually nowhere and just sneak in and open cages and let the minks out because, you know, they're indigenous to the area. They can they can survive. So um, uh, so they would just let them out. And so those, you know, that first communicate was for actions like that. Whole story behind that that I won't get into, but uh, it turned out we knew the people involved. We found out afterwards. So that was how we got the first communicate was they they actually knew me and, and other people I was working with and thought that we would be good. Uh, and then once we did that, um, then there was precedent for us doing press for underground organizations, 
right? And so, um, so then the, you know, like I said, the, the first ELF action, there was no communicate for, but it was a complete uh, burning to the ground of the Oak Ridge Ranger Station, um, which was the site, if you're familiar, uh, where they would do timber lease auctions, including for some famous, uh, relatively famous protest sites out there uh, that, that were being resisted, uh, tree sits and stuff at the time. So people were really upset with that, with that particular ranger station for being responsible for um, the cutting down of, of specific timber sales and forests in the area. So um, yeah, they burnt that down. It was like $6 million in damages. So there's a big difference between $6 million arson of a US Forest Service facility and and sneaking into a farm and, and releasing you know hundreds maybe thousands of mink um this this still is a pretty big difference so um right from the get-go the earth liberation front was going pretty hard and was 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 pretty serious to end um and then the actions just kept happening and and we would get, start get communiques for them um there were three dozen major uh, large-scale arsons claimed by the earth liberation front in the five in a five-year period um you know, it seems like the fairest assessment that I've seen out there was a quarter billion dollars in damages during that time period. Uh, several government facilities like the U.S. Forest Service and the uh, Bureau of Land Management, um, and then also um, many timber corporations and genetic engineering facilities and uh, Nike was a target. I mean, there was it was kind of all over the place, but um, but, uh, you know, corporations and government agencies known and unknown large and I won't say small but not so large medium-sized to large-sized corporations were being being burnt the the corporate headquarters uh, uh northwest headquarters for Boise Cascade which is probably the most famous quote forest product uh corporation at the time uh was was completely burnt down uh Christmas of 99 so uh so there were some big noteworthy actions like that cost several millions of dollars in damages and uh and they would send me the communique which is basically a note saying uh we did this here at this time here's a couple details that'll kind of prove that we did it and this is why we did it like all of that would be put into usually a few paragraphs uh with some kind of like go to hell message in there as well and uh and then get that communique and then we'd have to like um which was put into a press release and, and invite the press to come and, and talk about it. And uh, yeah, and then also deal with the, the, the legal aspects of that as well, which is a whole other thing. Right, which we have some questions about. And, and just so that the audience is clear is that all of these communiques were completely anonymous. Like it's, there's no, other than Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front, there's like no connection to individuals yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. Nobody's putting their name on there. Most of the communiques we got were claimed by the Earth Liberation Front, which is a decentralized anarchist, you know, sort of structural organization that anyone could join if they followed certain guidelines and claim their actions as, as the as the Earth Liberation Front. Some were claimed by other like one-off groups that you never heard from again. There were actually a bunch of those. Um, like, like Friends of the Trees and the Lorax and like all these other, you know, a bunch of genetic anti-genetic engineering organizations were like uh, cutting down crops and, and they would come up with funny names and then you'd never hear from that group again. Um, and then some communiques that we got were, were just like unsigned, like, you know, there was no organization affiliated with it at all. Um, and then of course there were actions that were very clearly part of the same movement, uh, but, you know, but nobody uh, put out a communique for it. Right. 
so this is an this is a period of time where this idea of direct action was being taken to uh, a higher level uh, where there was a lot of damage being done instead of just maybe you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars we're talking millions of dollars in damages that were being done and it was gaining momentum and popularity right there were turns out there were more people like me out there than we thought who were who were looking to to engage in a movement but were looking to do it in a way that was uh you know in a direct action orientation rather than rather than a sort of reformist mentality so um it was catching on right uh catching on to the point where the government the fbi in particular made several statements saying that the earth liberation front was the number one domestic terrorist priority uh, in the U.S. at the time, and that was the status for like a decade. And so as a result of you and others, I think actually I saw 60 Minutes with your one of, uh, another person of the ELF press office, uh, Craig Rosenbaum. Where yeah, just Rosebrough, Craig Rosebrough. It was Rosebrough. him and I that, that ran it. Uh, there was a, a loose group of other people who did some like mild support stuff here and there uh, who were involved on a lower level, but when it came to handling communiques, it was just Craig and myself. And you you met with the media like face-to-face or you weren't anonymous? No. <laughs> so you no, were like, the face, you became the face of the, the terrorist organization then, right? Uh, they, yeah, they called it the face of eco-terrorism actually yeah. in, a, um, in a Los Angeles Times Magazine article. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, you know, we were, <laughs> We were doing something that isn't isn't really done now um, and isn't necessarily super smart, but um, you know, it was gaining a lot of traction, right? Sort of trying, and we weren't we weren't trained or skilled at it. You know, we got better, but it was a very difficult task trying to convince the media and the public that like this eco terrorism was like a good idea, not really something that we were going to be super successful at, no matter how you look at it. But we did really work hard at trying to understand how how the media works you know we started understanding media markets and like how to break into like the los angeles and the new york media market because once you get into them then they call you again and again uh, for more and more stories and and the stories that they put out gain more traction we we did end up doing interviews with just about every major uh national media um sort of platform that there was magazine newspaper television um, I, we didn't do a lot of radio because it was mostly garbage. Um, but we did do, you know, a bunch of, you know, we did do a bunch of radio as well, NPR and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we really tried to figure out what worked and what didn't in terms of getting attention and getting bigger stories and broader stories. And it seemed like the more press that got out there, even if it wasn't super supportive, which of course it wasn't. Um, but the more that got out there, it seemed like the, the phenomenon was catching on as time went on more and more of these like ELF actions were happening around the country in areas that there had recently been press about ELF actions in. It seemed like people, it seemed like the word was spreading. Yeah. So it, at first it was just a Northwest phenomenon, but, um, but it really, it, it hit all corners of the country in one way or another over time. So, you know, for example, um, you know, the media, this is the obvious thing, the media likes fire, you know, like a, a big fire, a big explosion, something exciting. They're going to report on that no matter what. If a car crashes into a building and it makes a big explosion, that's a news story, right? So uh, that was really the, the hitch that the ELF was sort of going for in terms of gaining publicity was that, you know, if you, if you burn down a multi-million dollar building, there's no way they're going to uh, 
uh, not do a story on it, right? They can decide very easily that they're never gonna do a story on climate change um, and that they don't take it seriously for decades, even though the science is out there. But when you torch an entire SUV dealership full of you know brand new SUVs uh, for the purpose of fighting climate change, uh, they're gonna do uh, not just a story, but a, an incredible amount of stories on that, right? And they're gonna do all that. And everyone's gonna try to one up each other to be the one who to get the best story or the most inside scoop on that and so um you know we just tried to work that as much as much as possible um but again it was it was a struggle it's i started when i was 19 doing that and um yeah it's like i said it, it was a difficult task and there was a lot of criticism to be made of it and it doesn't seem to make sense in today's media world but at the time this is pre you know it's not pre-internet but it's it's pre what well, internet as we know it um the news market was was controlled uh by just a handful of corporations and you had to break into that to get the word out about whatever it is that you were doing you couldn't just start a, a twitter handle and like and do a post that goes viral there was no opportunity for that it was either zines and underground newspapers or getting getting press so that's what we tried to do was get press and uh, all credit to the people who were underground taking those actions because uh, they would not have bothered talking to, to us if it, if it weren't for all of those big, big, exciting, sensational incidents of fire. And so, you know, next, next thing that happens is then you and other people in the press office began to get, you know, scrutinized by the government. Right. That was actually right away. I can't even say it was next thing. It was before ELF even got us a communicate. They came to us after that first Mink release, ah, okay. um, which was also in the state of Oregon. And so this guy, John Comrie, who um, I don't know if you're familiar, but he was hunting down Rod Coronado uh, in years previous. So he was, he was an ALF fugitive and um, it was a big case at the time. So this guy who, who built his career to some extent on hunting down, you know, the biggest hero of the time during the animal of the animal liberation movement shows up at our house uh, while and, I'm out in the garden, uh, along and, with an Oregon State Police. Um, and he was, a, he was an FBI agent? No, he was ATF. Oh, ATF. Okay. Yeah, ATF. So Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms. It's like the FBI's nasty little cousin. Um, so, um, yeah, he shows up and, um, and, and immediately threatens uh he says that he says something to the extent of um this isn't you're not going to go to jail like you would for one of your civil disobedience protest actions like uh, you know what you're looking at this is you're walking on thin ice and what you're looking at is decades in prison for involvement in this kind of stuff you you need to talk to us and of course we weren't interested in talking so um you know that just kept going so even before even before the elf had sent us any communiques we already had been visited by fbi atf and oregon state police on a couple occasions asking about alf stuff animal liberation front stuff so when elf happened again those actions were bigger right um they were more anti-capitalist and more anarchist in orientation than the alf stuff ever was and um yeah, and so the, the investigations got more serious and more intense. Went on for the better part of a decade. Did you get any media that were kind of sympathetic or yeah. left, yeah, left was cool. media or anything? Like, or? Definitely. We we met a ton of we met a ton of media people, some of them famous. Um, 
you know, I could do a podcast just on stories about media people if you want to, but I won't. Um, you know, they they would send out this as the stories got big, they would send out like crews, right? Depending on on the outlet, they would send out crews. So there would be photographers. The photographers loved it. I could almost for whatever reason, like every photographer that I remember dealing with was like a fan of the ELF. They thought it was really cool stuff, right? The, report, the reporters, you know, often were, were sympathetic, but the stories didn't end up looking sympathetic, usually because the editors and the owners were less sympathetic. Or maybe in some cases, uh, there was actually advertising dollars coming in from some of the targets of ELF to those, to those media outlets, and there was really no chance of any sympathy happening there. Um, never mind that, of course, this stuff is all highly illegal, right? Um, so they're not, they're not going to be super sympathetic all around. But... Um, but yeah, there were definitely reporters who like, uh, I remember this, this Fox new, a local Fox news guy in Seattle that would, uh, that would cover a lot of radical environmental stuff. And whenever he came down to Portland to cover us, he was like, this is the favorite, my favorite part of my job, you know, but then the news story didn't look like it was, you know, like he loved us or anything, but he did. Um, yeah. So there were, there were a lot, there were a lot of people. And then there were the, several that hated the whole concept passionately as well. Uh, like, uh, like John Stossel, who was, I think, with, uh, was it was a 2020 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and other people, um, you know, they really, they thought it was terrible. <laughs> I think when we did anti-globalization stuff, that was kind of like that, like the, the photographers and the camera people were always really cool. And, but uh, yeah, once they cut that, like, discussion they had down to an eight second sound bite, it, 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 yeah. it was very different. Yeah. 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 You know, that one of the, one of the tricks that we sort of learned quickly to do was, was not talk too much right you just yeah. you say what it is that you want to say uh maybe in a couple different ways you know maybe disregard the question they're answering and just say what you want to say soundbite type of tactics and um you know those could work for short stories but when you start getting um into the studio or they start sending a full crew out and they want to do a two-hour interview uh, it, it started getting harder to do it that way so there were a lot of tricks and, and things that we tried to do too to just have a positive impact uh, um, through through the the articles or the stories that were coming out, and sometimes they worked a little bit, and sometimes they didn't, you know. But what are you gonna do? <laughs> How many times are you gonna be in Rolling Stone, you know? So go for it. <laughs> I mean, Scott and I met that way. We were doing, but it was like anti-globalization work, labor work, anti-war work, which is you know can be mainstream. But it it always seemed to me that like environmental and animal rights stuff, especially once you start seeing fires was very different. I mean, did you get like, you know, kind of blowback from even the left or people who yeah. even who normally might be allies, but were like distant or even oppositional? Yeah, of course, there's quite a bit, right? There's, um, there's a Sierra Club, um, you know, they, they would make uh, all kinds of negative statements about the Earth Liberation Front on a regular basis. They could almost be relied upon uh, for a, a counter point of view from the environmental side from many of these uh, reporters. So, um, and that would be both the national office and then certain local offices would also, they would be more inclined to make, um, to make negative uh, comments about the Earth Liberation Front on behalf of the Sierra Club. And of course there were local offices that weren't inclined to do that as well. But, um, but that, was, that was always a big thing. And, uh, and then of course, like on the street level, there were a lot of people who thought it was kind of cool and exciting. Uh, and many of even those people would would keep a keep a distance from us personally, 
And so at one point we had an office space, uh, third and Burnside in downtown Portland, if you're familiar with that uh, area. And we were sharing it with three other organizations. And uh, once, and it was just before the Vale arson, which was a $24.5 million arson of the ski resort that ELF claimed got national news all around for like weeks and weeks. We were dealing with the press from that. And shortly after the Vale situation, they sort of trickled out. You know, it was just, you know, if you're running a campaign to, to save um, one local uh, forest from being cut down, you know, you're not necessarily looking for all the heat that comes with, you know, speaking out on behalf of a, a number one domestic terrorist priority. So it's totally understandable. And there were on an individual level, a lot of people were were like, you know, happy that we were doing what we were doing, but also not necessarily wanting to appear or be that close to it it was it was intense you know uh, there was constant repression coming from um many angles for for many years and uh i sure didn't want to be around it so i don't know why anyone else who really didn't have any direct association would, would put themselves in that situation constant threats of going to prison or other repercussions that were very uncomfortable and increasingly uncomfortable as the years went on and what was some of the, the personal repression that you you experienced? Well, I'll, I'll say from from what I understood at the time, which is different than what I understand now, um, all kinds of stuff that was kind of unexplained. A lot of um, seeming break, seeming seeming like we were broken in, broken into. Our homes are broken into. Our vehicles are broken into, and things are missing. Usually, like address books or things that have like contact information for other people in it. Um, so we stopped quickly, like having those, I don't know if we even really ever had that much at all, but we started making sure that we didn't have that kind of thing around, um, being, so these agents would first do what they call an interview, right? Which is where they go at the door and they knock and they say, Hey, where were you on the night of like in the TV? Right. And, um, you know, they want to start a conversation with you and they start off trying to be friendly. That was, that was very early on until they realized we didn't want to have a conversation and that stopped quickly. But, um, you know, so you, you got to know who they were because they would introduce themselves first. And then on top of it, once they start serving grand jury subpoenas, you really start knowing who these people are. Um, several of them, you know, by name or you recognize their faces of, of them. Um, some of those grand jury subpoenas that they were trying to serve tur turned into car chases you start recognizing vehicles and people who are auxiliary people who are helping out right with with the whole situation but who would never introduce themselves to you start recognizing faces and and types of people types of cars right at the time it was like late model american cars that were always used you start picking up all this because it's going on for years right so you start picking up all this kind of stuff right um and seeing tendencies uh so there was also a lot of like low level harassment intimidation from the few people that we that we did know right some of these agents have like a personal sort of vendetta there was this agent fight of um of the fbi and that guy Camry i was talking about at the etf those two in particular had like vendettas against against uh the movement and us in particular right so there was like a um kind of like a, a a local chain health food store i think it was called like nature's or something like that in portland at the time and um you know, these were not the type of people that would shop at, at Nature's, I wouldn't think, you know, but they were quite frequently like two, three people behind us in line at Nature's, 
or at the food co-op. They're certainly not the kind of people who'd be shopping at People's Food Co-op, right? And in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> but right, that's but no, they were they were not normally there, right? So they were there just to like, intimidate us. Uh, they would we'd be out at like a Thai restaurant, and they'd be a couple tables over, right? Um, stuff like that all the time, constantly. For a period, they were doing this overt intimidation, thinking that if they put a lot of pressure on us, that maybe we'd either crack and start talking, or or just give up or something, you know. And so for the first maybe two three, two, two years, I don't know, there was, there was more of that parked out front of our house. And you never knew if it was really meant to be just intimidation or if they had a grand jury subpoena in hand and they were waiting for us to come out and then they could serve us a subpoena because they did successfully serve seven subpoenas during the time of the press office um, for grand juries. And then another one for a, a congressional subcommittee subpoena. And then after that, another grand jury subpoena. So I think that's a nine altogether that were successfully served. And, and that there were a lot that were not successfully served because uh, we tried to not get served. Um, so yeah, constant grand jury subpoenas, um, weird intimidation and threats. Like I was saying, saying that we we're going to be in prison for decades, not just you know for short periods of time. Weird th threats to our safety that were confusing. Uh, in the meantime, there's also threats coming from like militia groups that are being called into our to our house and otherwise sent through the contacts that we had per publicly available uh saying that they were going to like uh one of them in particular named the protest that that they were going to um kill us at and uh and even named where they were going to be shooting from right and then it all checked out i mean that would have been a good place to shoot somebody from right uh there were some physical confrontations with people i i got in a confrontation a violent confrontation with someone on the street one time um, who was clearly associated with the timber industry, but I don't know who they were. I don't know if they were hired or if it was a personal vendetta. We got called by some uh, targets of the ELF uh, on, uh, several times saying, hey, you burnt down my horse slaughterhouse. Uh, I'm gonna come and burn your house down, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then of course there were raids. Uh, there were two full-scale joint terrorism task force raids um, one in January of 2000 and another in April of 2001, where there would be a multi, is it like a multi-agency raid led by the FBI, where they would target, um, in our case, multiple buildings and vehicles all in one, all at one sweep. Uh, so uh, the building that the press office was running out of at the time, uh, our homes, our workplaces, and vehicles that they could associate with us were all rated simultaneously on those dates. And then there were at least two other that I can remember, just vehicle vehicle raids that were not associated with those big sweeps, uh, where the, where they had subpoenas for FBI had subpoenas for. So that was you know this it was it was a lot it was a lot. And then if you add into that all the ducking and dodging of grand jury subpoenas that seemed constant, it felt like um, every day for almost a decade. Something. Did you have um, a lot of like new people trying to get in who were probably, you know, snitches or did you have to kind of yeah. do that? Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's part of like, um, I mean, I suspect, right? And then if yeah. you look at the, like I said, I have FBI files on this stuff now. So there's more that I know than what I knew back then. Um, so there were a lot of people uh, who the FBI refers to as um, sources not in a position to testify, right? So there are people who are informing. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, the government wouldn't use them in court, right? Because it would out them one way or another. And I don't know if it, that could definitely be a safety concern for those individuals, or it could be something else we don't know, right? 
but um, but there were we have a lot of pages of, of FBI files um, with testimony from from uh, sources not in a position to testify, and then you know we do know a couple a couple people who were talking as well, um, and uh, there's always people you suspect, right? Uh, the nice thing, <laughs> oddly, and counterproductive in some ways, but the nice thing about about the press office was that this wasn't a public cadre organization that was looking for people to join. Like we were just, you didn't need more than two people and maybe a half dozen supporters to run everything that we ever needed to run, right? Um, we did turn down a bunch of interviews, so maybe we could have used more people to do interviews for, but we didn't really, no one was really gonna step up and do that. It was kind of craziness. So, um, so we weren't looking for people to join. And, and so when people came up and like wanted to say like, hey, I, you know, I got something really sketchy to say and I want to torch this place and blah, blah, blah. Like, can I get in with you? You're like, you know, we could just easily just say, hey, you know, this is not an open organization for security reasons. We're not, we're not like you know, letting people in. Hope you understand, you know, this is an anarchist movement. Do your own thing. <laughs> Good luck, right? And so, um, so that worked out to our advantage uh, in a certain way, security-wise, it worked out for, to our advantage. But um, in terms of larger movement building that we were directly involved with, it did not work out to our advantage, right? Uh, but that's another story. Like you, know, you can't do everything, I guess. That's what we. That's what was on our plate at the time, and so I just did the best I could do with it. And screwed up a lot, and hopefully had some success along the way too. You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash green and red podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get a, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can... Uh, donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards uh and so uh you know thanks for listening and enjoy the show once you were doing this work, you know, how, with all these raids, all this intimidation, did, you know, did you do any time? Were there times where they would come arrest you under suspicion of or et cetera? So I, I phased out like my civil disobedience stuff. Like, you know, I was, this stuff kind of overlapped, right? I was doing a lot of civil disobedience. So the last time I intentionally got arrested was 1999, summer of 99. Um, and it was kind of a big arrest. I was climbing the Washington Monument uh, and I got held for a long time. Uh, and questioned by the secret service. And I wasn't prepared for that. Like, you know, we just kind of threw ourselves out there and didn't really always know what was gonna happen, right? And um, so, yeah, there was this long sort of interrogation that they tried to do, the secret service tried to do before we even put in DC central cell. And and then there was a big case that stemmed from that, which I thankfully wasn't convicted of. But, um, 
you know, what happened was simultaneously we're doing press for, for these big underground actions. And it just felt like the press office work was much more valuable. And uh, it felt like we were getting more bang for our, for my buck. I'll speak for myself. I felt like I was getting more bang for my buck doing the press work uh, than I was doing civil disobedience actions or, or other stuff that was going to directly wind me up in jail. And I just lost interest, right? And I and I got to a point. I was, of course, in my own little radical bubble, right? But I got to a point where I felt like civil disobedience. What's the point? <laughs> of course, later I thought, well, yeah, there actually probably is a point, and there is a place for that. And you know, if we don't have that, then we have problems. But at the time, I was like, you know, I, I'm not gonna. I was training people to do civil disobedience back then, um, and planning and organizing civil disobedience. So. It, did, it just didn't seem like the best use of my energy, right? If we, if there was an ELF action, and they were happening more and more frequently, so we were pretty busy, right? If there was an ELF action, um, you know, we were getting whatever, you name it, all the press that, for after a while, all the press that you could handle would 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 show up and, and, want, a, and want an interview, right? They were, you know, flying you around the country to, I got flown to DC to interview for National Geographic TV show that they had going on. You know, it was extensive, right? And so um, it just really felt like that was more worth worth my time. So yeah, some of the civil disobedience arrests I did uh, several days in jail for, but I was never um, never sentenced uh, to jail time or or prison, right? And and it also just started to feel like what's the point of this 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 getting arrested on purpose thing? Um, I'm I'm just going to end up in prison for a long time anyway. Like why would I? go there now for some protest thing this is it just didn't make sense to me so so yeah um kind of forced change directions uh um based on the circumstances that i was in at the time but also glad to do it right um after after getting arrested a dozen or so times for civil disobedience the judges start to be like wait a minute you know probation isn't going to work for you anymore <laughs> so um so I have like one other more like kind of more personal related thing and I have some yeah. kind of bigger movement questions. But like I also saw recently where there's where the the state, uh, I think maybe the feds were basically like investigating burning books and yeah. trying to uh, trying to like basically say it was just another front for eco radical things that the state doesn't like. Could you eco terrorism? Eco terrorism. Yeah. That's the word I was yeah. looking for. Uh, could you could you talk <laughs> about that a little bit? Yeah, gladly. Um, so you can't just like, you know, be bragging on national television over and over again about how great, you know, some terrorist organization is and then and then stop and think that it's all going to it's going to be all good. It follows you, you know, um, it follows you the rest of your life. And so. Um, so. There was a period where, um, when I when I stopped being spokesperson for the Earth of Russia Front, and I released this public statement that was denouncing nonviolence, it was an intense period for me personally. So really super angry, super afraid I was going to end up in prison, and really willing to do almost anything to not go to prison, uh, except for snitching, of course. Um, so um, so I was not in a good place uh, mentally not in a healthy place mentally, maybe, maybe that was the right place to be for me. I thought it was at the time, but it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a healthy or a long-term sustainable type of place to be. And so there was a period, and this is like when um, the ELF arrest that did end up happening happened, right? Where I was pretty much convinced that they were gonna come from me at some point and trying to prepare myself for that. 
Um, and there was a lot of really sketchy stuff. So that period I was talking about early on where they were trying to intimidate us suddenly stopped at one point. There were no more vehicles out front of the house that we could see. Uh, we're still doing press for ELF. ELF is a bigger phenomenon than ever, but they gave up on the idea of pressuring us. They figured that they that I wouldn't talk, that Craig wouldn't talk, um, and that pressure wasn't going to work, and that they were going to try to uh, do stuff that was like uh, unknown to us, right? Um, uh, instead, focus the energies on that instead. And so this period after the press office, um, you know, two thousand five, four, five, three, four, five, around there. Um, was like was really intense for for several people including me personally and that's when these arrests were eventually did start to happen right and so um that was tough because there was all this really suspicious stuff happening and you never knew if it was just your paranoia um or or if it was actually like uh something was about to come down if if you get what i'm if you know like they were about to make an arrest or something that was about to happen it was really impossible to tell um, later on, I, I, I did get files that showed that there was a, an extraordinary amount of investigation going on at the time and that there were actual specific charges that they were debating uh, whether or not to pursue, including um, there was this one that comes to mind is there was this, uh, this ELF manual that was produced uh, from, the, from underground and which was distributed everywhere, including through the press office to some extent, I guess, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but uh, it, it, it basically detailed, maybe in too much detail, how to make these incendiary devices. And it was, it was called like um, starting fires with electrical timing devices. And it was rather detailed. It wasn't, the, it wasn't like a Molotov cocktail thing like, so, that anyone could do. It was pretty like, pretty like you'd need some technical expertise to pull some of that stuff off, right? But, um, but they, figured that, um, they figured that because my father was an electrician, which, Agent Comrie always sort of threw at me um, that I had something to do with the making of these devices, right? Or and or the distribution of um, of that of that booklet of that same thing. And so there was a, a charge that they were contemplating bringing against me, uh, uh, which was uh, distribution of information on weapons of mass destruction. Which seems like, oh my God, this is not a weapon of mass destruction. But that's the charge that they were contemplating bringing. And so. Later on, when I'll get to this burning books investigation, which spawned me to get FBI files, but you know, I, I ended up getting a bunch of FBI files. The, the FBI admitted to having over 30 pages, 30, I'm sorry, 30,000 pages of, of files on me in court. There's actually a recording of them saying that on YouTube. But um, I think I, I ended up getting like three to 5,000 pages through a lawsuit to a series of lawsuits that are actually still somewhat ongoing. And, um, and in those, I'm, I'm a little, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but I think there were 42 uh, different investigations that I was subjected to in various ways since 1996. So some of them had to do with the shack campaigns. Uh, several of them had the wrong person. Like I'm, you know, I'm much shorter with red hair in some state I'd never been in. There's something about like, um, teaching people how to use plastic explosives. I think in Louisville, like I, you know, no, I hadn't done that. Like a lot of stuff that they were saying that I had done in these files is incorrect, but a bunch of stuff was correct too. You know, like a lot of people like to talk about how the FBI are kind of like fumbling around and like not really doing a good job. And it's true. There's a lot of mistakes. Um, 
But there's a lot of stuff that's actually true in there as well, you know, to one extent or another. Like you, you don't want to completely discredit them for being too fumbling and bumbling because um, because it's not always fumbling and bubbling. And, and you never know when they're when they're gonna hit the nail on the head and come down, come down on you. So um so yeah, all this, all these investigations were happening. They had thought that I was responsible for several uh, SUV arson dealership arsons and fur farm animal releases in particular, for some reason, they thought that I was responsible for Romania too at one point, which is an ELF affiliated arson that burnt down an entire SUV dealership in Eugene, um, a million dollars in damages and was in the communique had named Jeff Lewers, who was a ELF-esque political prisoner at the time. Um, and so they ran my prints in association with something that they had, you know, that they had from the scene of the crime. And, and I got word of that. Um, and then later I get all these FBI files that show specifically that they're trying to, there was a, another million dollar arson of a forest service um, genetic engineering facility in Allegheny in Pennsylvania, Allegheny National Forest, that appears that they were working really hard to connect me to for a number of years, took tire prints off of a car in my driveway, trying to associate it with some kind of prints on on that as well so I, I could go again i could go on and on and on all of that means that like even after i'm spokesperson for the for the press office for years they're still associating and, and these investigations are not over right people watch if a tree falls or something and they think elf is all like said and done it's all like wrapped up and no you know I mean, at least a third if not half or more of the actions that continue to be unsolved there's many multi-million dollar arsons that are totally you know, open investigations or cold cases at this point, right? So uh, the stuff is is far from being uh, mothballed, really. Um, and so I moved back to Buffalo. I do a bunch of community organizing around poverty and uh, issues in, in our area here. And we end up doing this project that evolves into what is now burning books, right? Uh, we open a bookstore, it's a radical bookstore, you know, in the community and it's like a legit business and all this kind of stuff but pretty you know we've been here for 10 years at this point but the first couple of years were rough and part of the reasons that the, that that was so rough is because there was a, a big fbi investigation that was working to uh frame the bookstore up as a front for an eco-terrorist cell and whoever's listening um i mean if you want to form an eco-terrorist cell i'll say uh opening a high-profile radical bookstore it isn't isn't the best techniques for recruitment <laughs> um it certainly wasn't one i would ever want to use for recruitment you know it's, it, it is sounds great. super underground <laughs> yeah right yeah no, yeah you really find you really find a lot of success that way no that's not that's not the way to go um but of course the fbi they don't think you know the way that we think and they don't you know they're used to solving totally different kinds of cases Right. And, and if you go into new areas like, say, Buffalo, right, um, where there's a massive FBI office, they didn't have a whole lot of like eco-terrorism experience when I moved back to Buffalo. You know, they're dealing with uh, drug cases and whatever, racketeering, who knows what. This stuff, they, different, a different kind of criminal. Right. And so um, they decide that the bookstore is actually just a front to form an eco-terrorist cell and they get two informants to help them sort of frame this whole situation up. These informants are people who are living, they're tenants of ours living above the bookstore in an apartment. Um, we already had all kinds of weird personal 
drama with them as soon as like immediately after they moved in where they were sort of going around town and like bad jacketing the people who were involved in burning books talking to other business people and people in the community saying like stay away from them they're bad for this reason or that reason often saying like the fbi is onto them right uh and stay clear of them and um and uh, you know I, I don't need to get into too many details but it was a really hard period of time on a personal level because they're sort of attacking uh, all of us who are affiliated with burning books at that time but then what happens is i get a call from an old friend who's living on the west coast still saying that she got a call from two buffalo agents of the fbi asking questions about me and then she told me what they were asking and gave me sort of details about that um well, a couple of weeks later at the most, I find something in my mailbox that is uh, this memo uh, that was written on the back of a US post office cardstock that, that said like mail watch across the top and it had a 30 day period listed, my name and home address listed. And then it said show all mail to supervisor prior to going out on the street on it. And so, uh, you know, I contacted Michael Kuzma, who's like an activist attorney in the area who's done a lot of work for, for Leonard Peltier and has experience with mail covers. And clearly this was a mail cover, which is where the a law enforcement agency gets the post office to copy your mail before they deliver it to you. It's like a, over a century old technique that's kind of obsolete at this point, but that was like, um, that was right before they started copying everybody, scanning everybody's mail, right? Um, so it, it was a note that it turns out it was a note that was left on a stack of my mail for the substitute delivery person who was working, who was covering that day. This person wasn't especially competent and they picked the whole thing up and just dropped it all in my mailbox, right? We also found out shortly afterwards that um, within a month, I think after that, that um, the credit union, which had a lot of activists affiliated with it that we used at the time, um, had gotten a grand jury subpoena for all of the uh, all the records they had on all of the accounts of the people associated with burning books. There were nine different accounts that they wanted going back to the to the the year that burning books opened. So it was like a lot of a lot of files they were subpoenaing, right? Um, and then I also found out that I was on the selectee list, which is like at the at the airport where they it's, a, it's like the do not fly list, but they let you fly, but they uh, they have a secret code SSSS on your ticket that designates you for additional security screening. So all that stuff happened within just a handful of months. And so we launched this campaign to figure out what the hell was going on. You got journalists and lawyers and activists all together in one room and strategized a campaign to figure it out. And part of that, there were basically two parts of the campaign. Uh, one of them was exposure, right? So we got it, we did a bunch of press, including a front page New York Times article about it. Uh, but we also filed uh, Freedom of Information Act lawsuits against, against FBI and the ATF and the post office and several, actually several organizations or agencies uh, federally and state on the state level. So um, those produced a series of FBI files, which I have in giant binders <laughs> on the shelf at this point. So uh, yeah, it follows you, right? And uh, in fact, there was just a Jane's Revenge arson in Buffalo uh, a few weeks ago. It's one of the few Jane's revenge actions that actually uh, were arsons. Most of them are vandalism, other forms of graffiti and stuff. And so there was, you know, the second Jane's revenge arson, arson was, in, was in Buffalo here. And uh, yeah, we just, we just got a, a training together uh, what to do when an FBI agent knocks or visits training for all of the people who work at Burning Books because who knows, right? Um, who else are they going to go and and sort of try to interview in Buffalo associated with the stuff? I mean, there's a handful of people or groups or whatever, but 
certainly uh, the bookstore that is affiliated uh, with the press doing press work for the Earth Liberation Front not so long ago could be a uh, could be a place that gets visited by the FBI. So I don't expect it to ever fully disappear. The older and grayer that I get. Um, I think we're kind of closer to the end. Um, you know, when I hear you talk, I, I'm thinking that like a lot of the stuff you described <clears throat> with very different response and results is kind of like the, um, the anti-abortion movement. Uh, you know, just, uh, I, I think there's like in 2022, the kind of tactics you engage in, which were just, you know, kind of attacked back then now, or I think kind of far more common. I mean, do you kind of see that? Or in the summer of 2020, you had people who were actually quite supportive of you know, street actions of burning down police precincts and things like that. I mean, do you think that over time, the kind of stuff that you were doing, which was really kind of, you know, I guess marginalized, I don't know if that's the right word, back then has now kind of become more uh, accepted in terms of movement uh, tactics? Yeah, you know, we were pretty closely affiliated with everything that happened at the 1999 World Trade Organization protest in Seattle, yeah. the yeah. WTO protest, right? Uh, and that was just a massive uh, fairly organized trashing of the entire city, like um, from from the radicals' point of view, and there were, yeah, that was the idea from beforehand. So um, that felt like a really big, really big moment for us, right? I mean, we could do our actions at night when no one was looking, right, and um, and 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 feel the the power that that sort of produced. But when tens of thousands of people got together in Seattle and did it, did a bunch of window breaking or trash burning, whatever it was during the day, it felt like a pretty, like, it was, it definitely wasn't the most destructive thing that, that had been done, but um, felt pretty powerful and inspiring, right? And then all those conversations uh, happened afterwards about like property destruction is that, is that violence and all that kind of stuff, which were important conversations to have. But then fast forward 2020, um, you know, uh, there's a, this significant progress was made by the time the the, the George Floyd affiliated protests at the street, right? The, the, of course, those those debates were still happening, but I didn't sense that they were happening at the same level. A lot more people, and it wasn't just one city; it was it was nationwide, worldwide to some extent, right? And so a lot more people were just kind of like, "Yeah, I don't need to be convinced, right, that that this is necessary, um, or that this is justified." Uh, you know, back then there was a lot more convincing that needed to happen. And we felt like a smaller group of people uh, who were willing to endorse or engage in this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, what happened in, in summer 2020 was, was incredible. You know, I just remember, of course you can see it all too, right? And we weren't carrying cell phones around back in the nineties filming everything that was, was happening. You know, even, even when I did a news story, it took a lot of work to get the, the, a copy of the magazine or the article or get a video, a VHS copy of, of the uh, of the news story because um, a lot of those things happen and we never saw the result, right? Now something happens and, it's, and you can find it on the Twitter or whatever, right? And so uh, our access to media is a lot more extensive and our, our awareness of what's going on in certain ways is, is, is broader because of that. Um, but yeah, I think that over time, um, as the situation gets worse, which is certainly getting worse in a lot of ways um, on the environmental level, for example, people, there's, there's less work that needs to be done to convince people that maybe destroying a piece of property is justified, you know? Uh, and, that's, and that's natural, 
right? I mean, it, the situation is bad. And if you see it and you feel it and you know it, and you're not being tricked into anything otherwise, um, well, then you get angry. And, uh, and you might think that something more radical is justified. And that's just, it just makes sense. And um, there's also a, a lot of improvement in the area of, I guess what they're referring to of intersectionality, right? Our movements are struggling with that back in the 90s, early 2000s, like, and there's a lot of internal issues and people continue to struggle and there's, and there's struggles right now that are bad as well. But um, for example, there were very few indigenous people uh, involved with environmental campaigns that I knew of back in the 90s, right? And now it's like, you can't have much of an environmental campaign without kind of the indigenous involvement or even leadership, right? So there's way, way stronger connection there and across the board, um, you know, with anti-fascism. I mean, it just overlaps with so many other things that's going on. So there's so much progress that I'm seeing that's a lot better than it was back then. So I don't necessarily worry too much that maybe there's not as much um, direct action happening because the street protests are wilder and more powerful. And, uh, and our ability to contextualize the problems into a, a broader, more radical revolutionary analysis that incorporates all the things that the system is doing to us is, is so much more beyond where we were back in the 90s. And I think that that is incredibly valuable. And it does seem, you know, when the time is right, that people do not need to be convinced that breaking a window is okay. <laughs> it's, it really doesn't seem like that's the problem we're dealing with anymore. It really doesn't. So yeah, that was like, to me, the most kind of shocking thing, actually, 2020 was, you know, people are supporting burning down a police precinct, toppling statues, breaking windows, because, yeah. you know, I'm actually a little older than you. And so, you know, I kind of grew up in an era where, you know, that was just, you know, even on the left, you didn't really even discuss that. So um, I think, you know, your legacy is, is important in that regard. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I see a lot of continuity. Often I'll do interviews and people are like, well, where's the ELF now? Right. The, um, the environmental situation is so much worse than it was in the nineties. And we need ELF more than ever. If what you're saying is true, where is it? Like what's, you know, what, why aren't people doing this now? And, and my answer is like, you know, you just read a story last week about how, about these terrorists on TIFA. Like, who do you think, who do you think these people are? This is, ELF isn't like an organization, so to speak, with a capital O, right? This is, it's part of a movement that, that, that manifests itself at a particular time and place. And when that time and place changes, that energy manifests itself uh, in different ways, right? And, uh, you know, if you were to be doing underground direct action with 90s politics in 2020, uh, it would only get so far, right? You gotta, you gotta have the people of the moment around the issues of the moment in a context that is new and surprising, right? ELF was new and surprising at the time. It's gotta have that. Whatever it is that we do has got to have that in order to, to gain grounded. So it's not that we should be clinging to any particular organization or even strategy, right? Um, it's, that, it's that we should be doing what needs to be done at the time and willing to stand up for it and, and, not, and not compromise, right? So I think that that is still happening. Uh, and I think we see it so, uh, under different names over and over again and increasingly so. And I actually view all the stuff that's, a lot of the stuff that's happening on the right as a reaction of, of progress that we've made on the left. And, and we're, get, we're kind of getting near the end of the time we have. And so mm -hmm. I'd actually want to ask you a question about what you thought the, green le the lessons of that period were, but I feel like you just answered it. 
And so then the other thing I wanted to make sure we asked you about was just the Burning Books project mm-hmm. and, you know, building radical infrastructure, you know, putting radical education out there, uh, that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm just, my, my final question for me, at least, is like, what, what, what do you see? Why is that important? Why is our projects like that important? Okay. Try to, try to answer all that. Um, <clears throat> I think in a nutshell, the lesson of that, of that ELF era is that you need to be willing to fight hard and long and sacrifice um, and, and not compromise in order to gain, to gain ground, right? Um, and that this is a generational struggle that just gets passed on over uh, multiple generations. It's never gonna come to a resolution, right? We're always gonna have to struggle. We're always gonna have to take risks as long as there's a power structure to struggle against. We're gonna have to be doing this and that's just what it is. Um, so yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what else to say other than like direct action is incredibly powerful. Um, it's also, it comes at a high cost and that's just the equation overall. Like if something is very easy, it's probably not gonna have much of an impact, right? So if you wanna have a big impact, uh, you gotta take a big risk. Um, so there's a lot of other smaller lessons that ELF can, can lend, but I think it's important for people to realize that there's a place and time um, an unfortunately frequent place and time that we need to, to, to resort to things that are illegal and risky like that. And, and, uh, and it's not just a thing of the past that, you know, oh, it was good that Harriet Tubman did her thing back then, right? Um, we need to keep doing whatever it is that we're doing because these problems are not, they're not over. And with the environmental problem in particular, we're rocketing towards the ecological catastrophe and we need to fight as hard as we can to figure out as smart tactics as we can, as fast as we can. So that's what ELF is trying to do. Um, burning books is, um, well, let me just say burning books is attempting to, to build movement infrastructure, if that makes sense to people. Um, we were feeling like the more educational resources we had uh, that were politically radical, the better. And in order to do that, we should, we should create something that was meant to stick around for a while and be a space, a physical space that people could go into. And so that did end up turning out to be a bookstore, um, but that really wasn't the plan from the beginning. Like it was some kind of educational project, right? Um, that was going to talk about uh, radical issues and, and be uncompromising and supporting uh, underground and direct action type of politics as well. Um, and so we started a bookstore and it coincided with this period of time when all these amazing new books were being published uh, from radical perspectives, right? Um, within several years of opening the bookstore, it seemed like the, the amount of good stuff that was out there that we could fill the shelves with just multiplied and multiplied. Also the amount of people who were going around and giving presentations and speaking and showing documentaries and stuff on, on issues that we were working on increased. And so it just really, has taken off. Um, we of course dealt with with that FBI investigation for two years, uh, from January of 2012 to January of 2014, when they officially closed that investigation because we sued them, and we dealt with this police, this local police brutality situation and several other road bumps along the way. But we've sustained uh, through that and actually grown. Uh, and in was some ways, the, we was that the person who was like thrown down by the police and had injured. Uh, no, that's, that's Mark. I think you're thinking of Martin Gugino, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's actually involved in burning books as well. 
but I, I was referring to one of the co-owners, Nate Buckley, had a, a, police, a local police brutality case just before Occupy started. Oh, okay. Um, that was kind of a big deal locally, but you probably never heard of it nationally. But um, yeah, so there were a lot of road bumps along the way, like, and obviously the FBI was trying to make sure we weren't even able to keep going, right? Had that, had that investigation come to the conclusion it was hopefully looking, it was hoping to, to get to, we would all be in prison for terrorism conspiracy right now. Um, of course, it's, you know, we're not dead yet, so we'll see. But, um, but along the way, we were able to take what was going on to burning books and sort of frame it in the sense of like, yeah, the, the, we are a radical bookstore. Like, you know, hey, come check out the, come check out the bookstore that the FBI is trying to shut down. Was the <laughs> sort of concept that we were pushing. And in it, you know, um, it works to some extent. Like we've grown in popularity. We've become a place where a lot of people are comfortable and going, coming in, buying children's but radical children's books for their kids and like holding all kinds of events and puppet shows and lectures and documentaries, stuff like that in the bookstore. Um, and we've actually outgrown our space and we've, um, we've got the building next door and we have this big expansion. We've got an architect worked up this big expansion. We're like quadrupling our space just about. And um, we're doing like a big, uh, next month we'll be doing like a big a block party with like a, a dunk tank where you can be like dunking Marjorie Taylor Greene and who knows who else up in there. Uh, you know, it's just like, awesome. you know, it's, it's become somewhat popular locally and regionally. And we have people from out of town who stop in every single day. It's, it's wild. Um, so it's, um, it's a project that's really just working to, to amplify the ideas of, of our movement. Right. And um, doing that through getting people to buy and read books, right. Getting people to come to events relating to uh, different campaigns and organizations and projects that are going on right now, and to build support for those from from Buffalo, um, that goes out to whatever campaign wherever it is, right? And and um, hopefully we've been, we've been making some ground on that and and building sort of movement infrastructure because I I just it came to be obvious to me at some point that there was all this stuff from the so-called 60s era, right? These institutions that were around for a while. And then there were some people who held out for a long time. Um, we, we first started tabling this festival that Pete Seeger uh, did on the Hudson River over here. Um, that, was, that had a huge activist component and a huge environmental component, huge indigenous component to it. And we, the bookstore would go and sell books at that. And then Pete Seeger died. Uh, and it held on for a couple more years until it petered out, right? And all, as all these things peter out, then we lose our opportunities to turn new, to turn people on to new ideas, and to take people who are already turned on to ideas, and and get them more on board with something um, more fundamental and more significant in terms of change, right? And so we're just trying to create um, a platform for that, and that's what and that's what the bookstore is, and it's been successful, and we can't even fit in our little space anymore. So yeah. So that's what and um, you're also online, right? Yeah, burningbooks.com. Um, what do you call it? The Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we have a GoFundMe right now, help burning books expand. We have a Patreon, like like y'all do. Um, if you just search burning books on any of those things. Um, and we're constantly doing uh, fundraising stuff right now for our expansion. So um, so look for that if you if you want to support us. We'll, we'll put it. Um, we'll also, put it in the show notes too. Cool, cool. And also, just just check out our books because we work really hard to have the uh, the collection that we have, right? And and if you're interested in learning more about 
you know, pretty much anything on the radical left, um, ideas, actions, history, philosophy, zines, whatever it is that you're looking for, check, check out burningbooks.com and you might, you'll find some good stuff. Uh, Leslie, it's been great talking today. This has been yeah. super great, super great talk today. Um, and folks, you've been listening to Leslie James Pickering, former press liaison with the Earth Liberation Front and co-owner of Burning Books, uh, talking about history and, you know, current events and things, the, the way they're still happening in, in a sense. Um, we we do politics, but we do great history too. So I hope, you know, like remember yeah. that all you folks out there who support us. Yeah. Uh, it's important to kind of maintain this historical legacy and memory. And I don't think most lefty podcasts actually do that. And so um, yeah. thanks so much. This was fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and for Green and Red Podcast, check us out also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hit subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. Donate at greenredpodcast.org on the support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And everyone, make a lot of trouble, misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon.